Well, we're going to continue our series called Christmas Road Trip. But real quick, will you help me welcome all of the men at Valley of Grace that are joining us in our service today? Come on, church. Come on, church. New Life Church, we're so proud of you. We believe in you. We're praying for you. So glad to have you joining us on this Sunday morning. And Merry Christmas, road trip Christmas. How many of you are taking a Christmas road trip this year? You got plans to go see family or, or the like. Well, we are talking about the different road trips in the Christmas story. And last week, we talked about having a close call to collision. You remember this? Today, we're going to be looking at the journey of the Magi. You might know them as the wise men. And uh, I remember uh, in my family growing up, we had a nativity scene. How many of y'all got your nativity scene out? And I remember my mom's nativity scene. It was, uh, had this wooden little barn and uh, these, uh, uh, what do you call the clay? Porcelain. There's a word for you. Porcelain characters. All I remember was it went in the dining room, the room that my brothers and I were not allowed in. And that is where the nativity scene was set. And she had the same like miniature hay bales that went in there every year too. Um, and so, so maybe you have seen kind of the manger scene on display. Maybe it's on display at your house or in your front yard. Well, today we're going to talk about the journey of the Magi. And, and so real quick, I want to show you in Luke chapter 2, this is what it says. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So this, in some, in some uh, versions of the, the, this passage, it says, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor in the time that Jesus was born. Uh, Caesar Augustus was... Uh, uh, was, was, was given a lot of credit for the peace that Rome uh, experienced during this time, the, the, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, Rome peace. Um, Caesar Augustus um, was, was really wanted to take over the world. And, and a good way to know how you're doing and, and the growth of your empire is from time to time to take a census that you have to count how much you are growing. So they'd count money and they'd count people. And so this is during a time where a census is to be taken. Everybody's returning to their home. And they're, so in the days of Caesar Augustus. Well, who is this Caesar Augustus? Uh, again, we know he was the Roman emperor of the time. Uh, Caesar Augustus is actually the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He's actually his nephew, Caesar Augustus, his name formerly was Octavius, and, uh, and he was adopted to be the son of Julius Caesar when Octavius, when he rescued Julius Caesar during a battle. He saved his life, and so Julius Caesar adopts his nephew as his son, and he takes on the name Caesar Augustus. Um, now, eventually, Julius Caesar would end up dying, and if you know anything about uh, first century history, then you would know that Julius Caesar died when his best friend betrayed him and stabbed him in the back. And uh, at his funeral, 
there, uh, there was a star in the sky that shone bright, and, 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 they, and they say this star that appeared in the sky during Julius Caesar's funeral shone bright for seven days, and it was in, because of the star in the sky at Julius Caesar's death, they said that is a sign that Julius Caesar is not a man, but he was a god. And they attributed the star in the sky, it was, a, it was actually a comet in the sky that today we call, guess what we call it? Caesar's Comet. Because of our, uh, the way we can track these things today and we can see when these things appeared. They said that star is a sign that we are not dealing with man, we are dealing with deity. And so Caesar Augustus, he capitalizes on this moment. He says, well... If my dad was God, that makes me the son of God in the days of Caesar Augustus. And so because Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of God, he also, uh, he also felt he deserved worship in the days of Caesar Augustus. So therefore, if he was the son of God, he was also referred to, as many historians in their time and the things they wrote, poems that were written during this time, he was also referred to as not just the Son of God, but as God in flesh. Caesar, Augustus, God in flesh. So those that lived, they would write things that, that Caesar Augustus was the incarnate God and, and it was written in the first century that the only way to salvation is in Caesar Augustus. Now, how do you get a message like that out? What was the marketing tactic so for people to know that you are God? Well, there was no billboards. There was no Facebook ads, Google ads, nothing of the sort. So in order to get your message out, you would print your message on money. And if, you, and if you were to Google this, you would see that, that in the Roman Empire, a coin, it, on the face of the coin, it had a picture of Julius Augustus. Uh, Julius Augustus, you hear what I'm saying here? Okay. Caesar Augustus. And it, and, it, on the, and it says Caesar Augustus. On the back of the coin was a star to remind you, you're not dealing with a man. I'm the son of God. And on many of these coins, it even said, Caesar Augustus, the name by which man can be saved. On some of these coins, it would say, Caesar is Lord. To remind you, he is God and he is deserving of worship. Now also, during C again, during Caesar, Caesar, I can't say this word very well. You're going to hear me say, you're going to think I'm talking about pizza, a salad, or a medical thing. Uh, just bear with me. Caesar Augustus reigned during the time of the Pax Romana, during a time of peace. And so because this deity, this, this Caesar Augustus, he was considered by man to be God, God in flesh, that reigned during a time of great peace in Rome, they called him the Prince of Peace. Caesar's message, again, went all around the Roman Empire, printed on coin, which reminds me of a story when, when P 
people came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what should we do about paying tax to Caesar? Because Caesar's role, his whole goal, his mission was to take over the world. And, and so in order to do that, people had to fund his vision to take over the world. And so what should we do about paying Caesar's tax? He says, give me a coin. Give me a coin. And so he's like, I don't have a coin. Someone, give me a, someone gives Jesus a coin. And ultimately Jesus says, whose face is on this coin? Caesar Augustus. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give God what is God's. And moreover, what Jesus says, he says, whose image is on this coin? Think about Old Testament law. Think about your Ten Commandments. That you, thou shalt not have any graven images. And, and so in other words, Jesus was proving a point to these people that are trying to trap him with this question. He says, scripturally, you are not supposed to carry around the images of other gods. So you're worshiping money. So, so give Caesar what is Caesar's. Give God what is God's. Plot twist. Don't challenge Jesus. In the days of Caesar Augustus, there was a slogan about Caesar that went around in his time, and it was this. It was Caesar is Lord, and this is what people would chant. Caesar is Lord, no other name by which man can be saved. And then they would chant this. There will be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Prince of peace, God in flesh, the incarnate God, the son of God, Caesar Augustus. Does any of this sound familiar to you? You see, the writers of the Bible were writing to real people in a real time, facing real problems. The story of Christmas is simply this. Even during the reign of evil tyrants, God wins. And when the writers would write this, that, that there is this new prince of peace, king of kings, lord of lords, by whose name no other man can be saved, not only is that an in-your-face move towards the oppression of Rome, it'll also get you killed. It will get you killed, wouldn't it? During the days of Caesar Augustus, consider what John 1.14 says. It's not on the screen, but it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, hold up. Where would they have heard this idea before? Caesar Augustus was God in flesh. And the Gospel of John says, uh-uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Or consider where the Scripture says, the virgin will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, incarnate. How in your face is this to the Roman Empire of that day? There was a whole lot more going on in the Christmas story than just meets the eye. This is an in-your-face movement to the oppression of Rome, and it's coming down. And what has oppressed people for years, something is stirring underneath the surface. And the leaders in that time sense that trouble might be on the horizon. Let's look at the journey of the Magi now in Matthew chapter 2. This is what it says. This is 
after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. I just want to make a quick little point because I remember as I'm thinking about that porcelain nativity set in the dining room that my brothers and I were never allowed to touch or play with or put our G.I. Joes next to because we tried. But my dad would always take the magi, the wise men, and he would move them from the buffet. You know the China buffets, y'all? Okay. And he would move it to the other side of the dining room. And I remember saying, Dad, why are the wise men over there and not at the manger scene? And he would say, because they weren't there when Jesus was born. After Jesus was born, the wise men came searching for Jesus. I was like, and he showed me that in the scripture. I was like, does anybody else know this? <laughs> so the wise men were not there when Jesus was born. If you put them in your nativity set, that's fine. Just maybe scoot him over a little bit. I don't know. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. So here is during a time where King Herod ruled over Judea, which is modern-day Israel. And you see Caesar Augustus would put in his empire puppet kings that he would put these kings in certain regions of his empire in order to keep order and peace. And Herod was a puppet king of Caesar Augustus in the days of Caesar Augustus. And so, so after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? You have to understand, <laughs> King Herod was raised with Jewish ancestry. His, his ancestors were Jewish converts, and he was raised in a kosher home and under Jewish tradition. And because of that, many people in the first century called King Herod King of the Jews because he was raised in a Jewish home. Now, he may have had a kosher diet, but he did not have a kosher life. King Herod was a bad dude. And he was called king of the Jews. So now these wise men, these magi, come traveling from the east, and they say, we're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews you see how this is problematic to King Herod's ego. This is a problem. And then they say this, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who else had a star that they used to claim that they deserved worship? None other but Julius Caesar, the father of now the son of God, Caesar Augustus, God in flesh. And when you can imagine now the tension building in the room, that there is someone else claiming to be king of the Jews and has a star that signifies his deity like our Caesar. This could be very problematic. So King Herod the Great, he was installed by Rome to rule over Judea. Uh, Herod was praised for being a master builder. Um, he even added on to the second temple. And the way that King Herod was able to become such a master builder is he would heavily tax the people 
in his area. He would heavily, heavily tax them to fund his building projects. And it is said that his wild spending contributed to keeping people under his rule in poverty. Herod's, again, Herod's ancestors were Jewish converts, so he was called the king of the Jews, although the true Jews never, never called him this because he was not in the line of David. We talked about that last week. Herod was a bad dude. He was a ruthless tyrant, full of evil. His critics would say that he was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition, King Herod. He'd be willing to commit any crime. You cross him, he'll kill you. Even Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus himself, here's what he said about King Herod. He said, it is better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because King Herod actually killed three of his own sons out of fear that they would overthrow him. King Herod, one bad dude. You don't cross King Herod, king of the Jews. And this is why Jesus' birth was like an earthquake rumbling through the Roman Empire. They had ruled and reigned and expanded their empire, set themselves up as kings and emperors, funded by the poor, and then all of a sudden there is a new king being born. Matthew 2, verse 3, this is what it says. It says, when King Herod heard this news, he was greatly disturbed, as you can imagine. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And so King Herod, he's trying to do a little bit of homework right now. These magi from the east have come. They said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. He's like, I am he. Like, no, no, we heard that he was just born. And we saw his star, and he is deity. So what King Herod does, he calls the Jewish teachers, and so these would have been like, these would have been scholars of Scripture, and he calls them, and he says, you know uh, everything about the Messiah. Tell me, what does your Bible prophesy about the coming of the Messiah, and where is he supposed to be born? And so these teachers of the law, uh, they would have been Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and, uh, and, and, and you see, every Hebrew boy didn't just memorize the entire Torah, but they also memorized every single verse that prophesied the coming of the Messiah. The reason they memorized every verse about the coming of the Messiah was so they wouldn't miss him when he came. And so King Herod says, where's your Bible prophesy that the Messiah is supposed to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem, which was five miles away. And so uh, this, again, I can only imagine Herod's growing frustration in this moment. 
In verse 7 it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> yeah, so you can, you can worship him? Is that the plan, Herod? Hmm don't think so but there's a plot twist you see because one night the lord visits the magi in their dreams and warns them not to return to herod but to escape another route which of course didn't make herod very happy when he found out that he just got dodged by the men from the east he was counting on the magi to find this quote king of the jews this imposter, so that he, so in other words, so then King Herod decides, well, they're not going to get me like that. I have another plan. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Remember, he had asked them, he asked the teachers of the law, where's Messiah supposed to be born? They said, Bethlehem. He tells the Magi, go to Bethlehem. Oh, but real quick, about what time did you see the star? And so that we know that it's within this time frame of the last two years. So he gets dodged and he says, you know what? And he's mad. He's like, I'm going to rid the earth of this, quote, king of the Jews. And he orders the slaughter of baby boys two years old and under. You see, this, this is just a tactic of the enemy. When the enemy wants to try to abort God's plan for the world, he starts aborting children. And actually, this isn't the first time we even read about this in Scripture. In Exodus the king of Egypt called the Pharaoh. He attempted to abort what God was doing. You see, the Pharaoh became very fearful that the Israelites were growing too numerous. The Israelites were, had served 400 years in slavery to Pharaoh. But God was making the Israelites prosper so greatly. They're growing and growing and growing in numbers. And Pharaoh realized, holy cow, um, if they got their act together, they could probably overthrow us. So he issued a decree, and the decree was that to every midwife that was helping an Israelite woman give birth, if they saw the baby was a boy, to take the boy and throw him in the Nile River. And mothers screaming and crying all over the town, as you can imagine, except there were some midwives that didn't have the heart to do it. And then there was a baby that was born whose mother decided to keep him in secret. And then one day swaddled this baby and played him in a basket and took him down to the edge of the river where later that day the princess from the, 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 the palace would come down to the river and find a baby in a basket. And she looked and saw that there was no mother around, but she saw this, this child was 
was a Hebrew, an Israelite, and, and understanding the decree her father had made to, that, all, that this is a boy and should be thrown into the Nile River, but instead she, she scoops up the baby boy, and now this baby that was born a prisoner in Egypt is actually raised in the palace. And his name was Moses. And Moses would grow up to become a man that would deliver his people from 400 years of slavery. See, when the the enemy looks at a young generation and is afraid that if they get their act together, they'll overthrow the damage and evil we have planned for this world. And then there's a whisper that a Messiah has been born and that the decree is issued to, to again, start killing babies. See, the enemy is very afraid of what young people can do if God would get a hold of their lives. And, and although this in, in, terrible event took place, there was also an incredible plot twist. Not only was that baby wrapped and swaddled and laid down by a river and would one day be raised to become Moses, but also during the time of Jesus, when Herod gives the decree to slaughter all baby boys two years old and under in the whole area of Bethlehem, an angel of the Lord appears to Mary and Joseph and says, run, escape to Egypt. And they escaped and escaped the slaughter. You see, This is a reminder that the story of Christmas is that even in the face of evil tyrants, God still wins. It doesn't mean that people were not absent of sorrow and grief, the loss of loved ones. But even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of what was taking place, God was still making a way. In verse 9, it says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the child with his mother, look what they did. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The journey of the Magi is what actually brought to the surface to the leaders of the Roman world that something was about to play out and would lead to the demise of their empire. This is why people thought that the Messiah was going to come and take over the Roman Empire. His disciples would even say, hey, Jesus, awesome. Are, you, are we ready to take over Rome now? They were so sick and tired of the emperor's oppression over them. They thought Jesus was going to establish himself as the new king and that they were going to go to battle. But Jesus said, no, no, no. This kingdom is not of this world. This kingdom is in your heart. And you, and which is so awesome because if the kingdom of God rules and reigns in your heart, the kingdoms of this world can't touch it. The kingdoms of this world can't win. That means that the kingdom of God can live and thrive and grow and make a difference regardless of the empire, regardless of what man's control and man's evil is. God's still winning. God's still winning in America. God's still winning 
in Russia. God's still winning in China, in the Vietnam. God is still winning because the kingdom of God is not about man's governance. It's about a governance that rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. And you can't take that away. When communist China closed the doors to any missionaries coming into their, their country, for years and years and years, there was really no understanding of what, it was, what, what the church was experiencing or that if it was even still there. But then they, they cracked the door open and, and some missionaries entered into communist China. And you know what they found? They found that the church was alive. And the church was thriving. They, 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 yeah, they hid in caves. They, they snuck out at night to meet together and memorize scripture. And so they, people began smuggling Bibles into China and they thought they hit the lottery. Even in the face of tyrants and evil of this world, God's still winning. And that is the Christmas story. That Jesus came as the King of kings, Lord of lords. In other words, when Jesus' birth made a proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, that he brings freedom and you don't have to live in the fear of oppression any longer. A baby has been born in Bethlehem. Amazing news. So much is going on in this story. I want to tell you, but though you can take three positions as to Jesus as King. There's three positions you can take. We see them in this story. The first position that you could choose to take as Jesus as your king is you could take a position of opposition. You see, King Herod, his, his position was that he opposed Jesus as king. And you certainly can make that decision as well. That you can choose today to say like what Herod would say, I'll be king of my life, thank you very much. I will be king of me. I don't need King Jesus. You could take a position of opposition. That I'm going to still do life my way. I'm going to have my fun. I'm going to live the way I want to. I want to be king over me. And this response to Jesus as king is a clash between spirit and flesh. I'm going to choose to live in the flesh and not surrender in the spirit. For some, the idea of God being a more powerful uh, being in their life than them infuriates them like it infuriated Herod. Herod was infuriated to think that there was another king better than him, which is the reason why he would slaughter his own family, the reason why he would slaughter two-year-old boys, because nobody was going to be greater than me. And sometimes the problem is not the problem, the problem is me. When I want to be king of me. And some would say, well, if God is real, if God is real, then it's going to force me to submit to him. And I submit to nobody. And to submit, I'm going to have to then admit that he's greater than I. So you could take the position of opposition. I don't, there is no more king. There's just king me. The next position you could take is the position of suspicion. The Jewish priests dismissed Jesus as king. Why were they so suspicious of this Jesus? 
These preachers, these priests and teachers of the law, they knew every single prophecy of the coming Messiah. They could just fire it off. They had memorized every scripture about the coming Messiah in order that they wouldn't miss him when he came. But he's five miles down the road and they didn't even go. They didn't even go check it out. So you could take a position of suspicion and say, you know what? I'm not even going to take the journey to find out if this is true. And this becomes a roadblock for so many people God's purpose for your life. That God wants to forgive you of all of your past failures, give you a brand new life, but people don't want to take the journey to find out if it's true. I don't know what you're afraid of. He's not to be feared. He's to be revered. He wants to set you free and liberate you. And it's just down the way. You just got to take the journey to find out that he's real. Position of suspicion. The Magi traveled from the far east, but the, but the priests, they couldn't go five miles. They dismissed Jesus as king, as suspect. Suspicion today sounds like, nah, I've been there before. Nah, I've, I've been to church, grew up in it. I've heard the Christmas story. Seems like a fantasy, seems like a myth. I mean, no big deal. I'm good with going to church maybe on Christmas and Easter. I'm good with being a CEO Christian. You know CEO Christian? Christmas and Easter only. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a CEO Christian. I'm good. Don't be suspicious. Don't dismiss this. So you can take a position of opposition. You can take the position of suspicion. Or you can take the third position, which is a position of adoration. The Magi, when they saw Jesus with his mother, they bowed down and worshiped him as king. And this Christmas, that could be your position. They bowed down, which is in a surrendering type position, and they worshiped him. The greatest gift that you can give Jesus is one of worship. You know, and every Sunday we come in here and we give God a a gift. It's our worship. It's our surrender. Surrendering your life to him. And and this is the kind of surrender that will be the most free. People say surrender sounds like being entrapped. Surrender sounds like giving up. Surrender sounds a lot like bondage. Not when you surrender to the Lord. Surrendering to Jesus is the most liberating thing I've ever experienced. I thought I was giving up my life. I thought I was giving up something that would be missed. And I didn't realize what I was truly missing out on was surrender to him. The freedom that came, the forgiveness that came 
being free from sin that entangled, being free from despair, being free from worry, being free from shame. And all of this freedom came from surrendering. But our mind gets it backwards. Like Surrendering sounds like someone's got something over you and there's no fun. But the kingdom of God flips that idea upside down. Surrendering is the most freeing thing you can experience. So you can take a position of adoration, which is of surrender and worship unto God. This is my last thought this morning. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to invite our prayer teams here in a moment. But take the trip this Christmas and worship Jesus as king of your life. Take the trip. Take the trip. The Magi came from the far, far east. But the teachers of the law couldn't go five miles. Take the trip this Christmas and worship Jesus as king of your life. Let's all stand together, can we? We're going to take the last couple moments here together and do just that. Uh, For all of us today, we're just going to say, God, We're just going to remember that this Christmas, he is king. And that his birth began a series of events that would end with freeing humanity from the brokenness and despair that they were caught in. A baby is born. A baby is a big deal. King of the Jews. God with us. God in flesh. Prince of Peace. Caesar doesn't win. Jesus does. What is the Caesar that has been ruling over your life? You need to remind that thing. Caesar doesn't win. Jesus does. Fear doesn't win. Jesus does. Sorrow's not going to have my heart. Jesus is. We're going to sing one last song. If our prayer teams would come to my right and left, and if you, have, if you want to receive prayer for any need, whether it's related to this message or not, if you have any need in your life during this last song, would you come and just receive prayer from our team members down front here? So team members, if you would come in place, we're going to give Jesus the worship he deserves this Christmas. So come on, help me now. Let's begin to lift our voices and worship him. Thank you, Lord. We take a position today, God, of adoration, of worship unto you. We choose to take the trip to do hard things. We take the trip to discovery of all that you have for our lives. You are good. You're so good. You are king. Caesar is not. You are Lord. You're the true prince of peace. Not by claim, but you've proven it with your life. Thank you, Lord. I bless you to know that you have a God that loves you. He sent his son for you. I bless you to know that you have a God that is deserving of worship. And the surrender found in it is so liberating, so free. I bless you this Christmas in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, one big praise to the Lord again. Come on. Awesome.